on Sunday mornings, we are looking together at Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, chapters 1 to 4. And today we come to the second half of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, begins the history of humanity. And here in chapter 2, we read about God's creation of humanity. And we read verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought it to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see and to understand what your word says to us. We pray that we would see these as timeless truths. We pray that we would apply them relevantly and helpfully into our world and our lives. And we pray that we would be obedient, willing listeners of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Driving up to Abernethy last week on the family's weekend, early on the Saturday morning, crossing across the fourth road bridge while it remains still open, like every other road user, your eyes are drawn left off the road to see the mighty great pillars that are embedded into the bedrock of the fourth, upon which the whole infrastructure of the new bridge will hang. Now, that is the kind of material we are on here in Genesis 2. They're like the pillars embedded in the bedrock of God's sovereignty for the world and humanity upon which everything else hangs. As one writer puts it, the instruction here is primary and vital to all of human existence. Now, you'll see on the inside of the service sheet, if this helps you, some uh, points that I hope will help get to the heart of this. Ever since I once said in church that every sermon has three points, we've never had three ever since. Now, just as we begin, glance back with me to chapter 1 of Genesis, 
helps me if you just follow along and see that what I'm saying is out of here. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 26 and 27. Chapter 1 is like a preface to the book as a whole, and it is encompassing of all creation. And verse 26 of chapter 1 focuses on the creation of humanity. Read with me verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. And the key phrase is, let us make, not let me make. Let us means that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. In his very being, God is relational. The Father with the Son and with the Spirit. And that relationality, if you like, is reflected as part, or perhaps more accurately, as the heart of what it means to be human created in God's image. We are relational beings. On two levels, first vertically, with God. We talk to Him, we hear from Him, we rule His world under Him. We worship Him. And that relational, vertical dimension, Andy looked at last week in the first half of Genesis 2. Now, I encourage you to listen to his talk. It's really great. I'm very thankful to have such a strong team of preachers around me. Keeps me on my toes. Although he did, if you listen to his sermon, omit to deal with the bit he didn't know what it meant and left it for me to do next week. Now, today we're on the horizontal bit, the relational bit of us that relates to each other. First point, and here we spend the bulk of our time and then apply it in 2, 3, and 4 on the sheet. First point, God created man and woman and marriage. If you've got a pen, I'd just slightly change that. I would go, God created man and woman and therefore marriage. There's a, a consequence Now, that's not a small point, is it? God created man and woman and therefore marriage. It's not a kind of sidebar. Verse 18, it is not good, God says, for man, Adam, to be alone. What is a phrase that we have heard again and again in Genesis? Think of chapter 1. It was good. 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 It was very good, the end of chapter 1. And now, kind of jarring against that, it is not good. God looks at man, at Adam. He has created and sees a substantial deficiency. Now, the women in the room might well agree with God. God looks at man and sees a substantial deficiency. Literally, that's what it means. 
And he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, that Hebrew word translated helper is in no sense a diminishing or servile term. That's not what it means. Helper means corresponding counterpart or complement. One who would supply what was lacking in him, a match for him. One who would make him complete for what God intended him to do. That's what it means. It is not servile in any way. Now, just to nail that case firmly down, the word helper is used for the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament. And the word helper is not used of Israel, but of God in relation to them. Exodus 18, Deuteronomy, Samuel, and so forth. So why did God decide it was not good that man should be alone? Because, as we've seen, God created us to have relationships with those who would be like us. Now, who, therefore, was it to be who would be Adam's complement? Well, chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, you'll see that there. Adam is given the responsibility by God of naming the animals. So read with me verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not find a helper fit for him. So a big gray creature with big flappy ears and a long nose goes past Adam and he muses and he says, elephant, and it ambles on. And a tall creature with a spotted neck goes past Adam, calls it giraffe. And every living creature passes by him. He names everyone, but for Adam there was not a Helper, compliment, companion, match, fit for him. Now, I'm a little biased. I do wonder if a black Labrador came past, Adam's heart might have tugged for a moment and thought, she's the one. But she's not the one. Why is she not the one? Now, on a serious point, we need to be careful not to personify animals, to turn them into people. Human beings can love animals. And they can love us and be a great comfort. But they do not love as we love. We talk to them and think they talk to us, but they don't. They cannot reason. They cannot share our creative capacity. Cats can make a chorus, but they would not get into Eric's choir. And they would not do what he said either. Animals do not share our capacity for that which is transcendent. They cannot worship, for they were not, and we only were, created in God's image. And so for Adam, there was not found amongst the animals a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The first surgery performed on a human being. Adam lost a rib. 
His children had the full complement of ribs. It is not true, and I'm almost certain this is right. There are so many medics in the room that they tell me if I'm not. It is not true that men have one less rib than women. Just Adam, why a rib? Well, man was formed out of the dust of the ground, for he is a natural being. And woman was formed out of the same stuff as man, for she too is a natural being. Why the rib? Well, I don't know. Here's Matthew Henry, one of the Puritans on the subject. Now, his language is of a different age, a little sentimental, but perceptive, I think, in the point that he makes. Woman was, he writes, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved by him and to love him. Now, it's a little sentimental, but I think theologically there is a lot of richness in what he says. Then God brought the woman to the man. Up to now, all that Adam had seen were animals. He named them, but they were not right for him. But then he saw the woman and his reaction. Now, these are the first human words in the Bible. What do you think Adam said? Do you think this is an objective, cold, forensic analysis. This, to be fair at last, is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. What will I call her? She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of me. No, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman. He sees in her stuff like him, And stuff that is not like him, that perfectly complements and matches him. And he is thrilled. He is over the moon. Man and woman designed by God for one another. Sovereign, divine design, men and women. Physical complementarity. Sexual complementarity, psychological complementarity, emotional complementarity, all that is masculine and feminine in God's perfect creation of what these things were meant to be. And Adam is over the moon. In my study on the shelf next to my desk, And some of you would have seen that if you've been in it. I have photographs of lots of couples who have been married in Chalmers over the years. It helps me to pray for them. You know, these thank you cards you get now uh, have all these nice photographs of wedding couples on them. And they array my shelf. And when I marry people, I get to stand at the front and see their faces. Sometimes when I get emotional in church, really, it's because I see your faces. It's hard sometimes. And when a groom sees his bride, or when a bride sees her groom, sometimes I can think of one couple, I'll not tell you who they are. I'll not look at them. They're not here. 
when he saw her and she saw him, there was in some way that is a pale reflection of Adam's words, the spontaneous sense in his heart, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and I'm going to marry her. Something of this. God created man and woman, and there is something fundamentally important here. Think of that pillar embedded in the fourth. Well, this is the big round concrete bit that is under the water upon which the rest of the pillar stands. Fundamental to humanity is gender. Man and woman. Everything else follows that. Marriage and sex. Humans know this. So when a baby is born, what is the first question that is asked? What is it? What is the answer? A boy or a girl? If you're a man, that's the only question you ask. I always forget to ask, how is the mom? (laughs) How is the dad? What size is it? And is it handsome or is it pretty? Is it a boy? Is it a girl? Gender is so bedrock in God's design for humanity. Now, God created humanity, man and woman, that we might relate to one another. And we do so in all sorts of ways as humans. I took David to Easter Road this week to watch Hibbs take the next step to League Cup glory. And standing in the queue for tickets, I got into what would affectionately be called banter with the bloke in the queue beside me. We moaned about the prices. We commented on the size of the crowd. We commented on the fickle nature of supporters that only come out when they're winning and agreed that he and I were in that group. But we talked. It's as natural as it is to be born. We have friendships. We have families. We have a church family. We relate to one another as humans in all sorts of ways. And here in Genesis 2, the focus is on the particular relationship that is marriage. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You'd have heard these words in marriage services. God created man and woman and therefore marriage. God did not create marriage and then decide what it would be. He created man and woman and therefore marriage. I wonder if you noticed in the text of Genesis that it's the man who leaves his parents. 
Our liturgy practice in wedding services is the opposite way round. Who gives this woman to be married? Perhaps we should change it and the man should walk up the aisle. I wonder why we... That's another question for Andy Robertson to answer. <laughs> why is it this way around in Genesis? It might be practical because men find it harder to leave their parents. They like to return with their washing and for their dinner. And that needs to stop when they're married. More seriously, it is embedded in God's design for marriage that a man has a responsibility to take the lead and to make that relationship with his wife truly and fully marriage. And there's another reason I'll come back to. Now let's spend a little bit of time on the details of this verse. Three key words. Just look with me. Therefore a man shall leave, that's number one, his father and his mother and hold fast, that's the second, and they shall become one flesh. Leaving, holding fast, one flesh. Or in old translations, forsaking, cleaving, uniting. These are the pillars on which a strong marriage is built. Leaving, the people of Israel would have lived as large family units, a husband and wife and their children in the same physical place as their parents, brothers, sisters, siblings, families. So it's not a physical leaving. The point is that in marriage, first loyalties change. There is a new family unit. There is a new person to whom your first loyalties now must be. And marriages struggle when that first loyalty does not change. If you are married, your first loyalty is to your spouse. Secondly, holding fast literally means stick to the other. Covenant commitment and permanence. The covenant committed faithfulness that one promises to the other that whatever the future holds, that future will be faced together. To have and to hold is right out of Genesis chapter 2. To have and to hold fast from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and in sickness and in health. So help me God. I do, people say. To hold fast is a, a positive, creative, dynamic contents. It is not to be understood as holding on to a marriage. It is to be understood as holding on to each other within a marriage. And that same Hebrew word, hold fast, is used as an encouragement to the people of God to stick to the Lord as in a covenant relationship. And then thirdly, one flesh. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh refers to the personal union between a man and a woman at every level of their lives. And that oneness is expressed in and deepened through the intimacy and the pleasure of sex God created sex to express, to deepen 
the oneness of a husband and a wife. Now think of that word, one flesh. The intimacy of sex to express, to deepen that oneness. Where else in the Bible is that word one flesh, that sexual word used? Perhaps the most famous statement in the Old Testament, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one flesh, same word, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sex expresses and deepens the oneness of a husband and a wife in a way that reflects the oneness of the intimacy between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sex is not something God is ashamed of. It is something that goes back to the very nature of his relational being. God created man and woman, and therefore marriage, and therefore sex within a marriage to express, to deepen that covenant bond between a man and a woman, and therefore to fulfill the mandate given to humanity. Chapter 1, to fill the earth with image bearers of God. The last words in Genesis 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, a significant verse that I'll speak on next week. Now, that's what Genesis 2 says. Let me apply it in the time we have left through these other points. That is God's sovereign will in creation. Now, that's not the world we live in, yep. And I don't mean it's not the world out there. It's not the world in your life or mine, is it? And if you feel under the spotlight of Genesis 2, the person next to you is also under that spotlight in exactly the same way, and the people around you. So don't, don't feel alone in that. It's not the world we live in. We live in the world of Genesis 3 onwards. We live in the real world. No, we don't. The real world is the world God created. And the world that one day will exist again when His Son returns. We live in a fallen world where the rebellion of humanity in which we all share has shattered the image of God in us. Like a mirror with a thousand cracks, we can see the pale reflection, but it's a distorted, broken image. Humanity's relationship with God is broken. The inbuilt capacity we have to listen to God, to speak to Him, to worship Him. Many people in their threescore years and ten 
Never look up to God. Never. Humanity's relationship with one another is broken at every level. Globally, nationally, ethnically, socially. Tensions are worse in work, in our families, even in church families. God created man and woman in marriage and sex within marriage. With our rejection of God as humanity, we have rejected how we are to live. Therefore, sex outside of marriage, marriage no longer only between a man and a woman, and at the most fundamental matter of all, gender is now in our culture not God-given, but a social construct that we determine and change over time if we so desire. And that is not the world God created. Now listen to what God says in his word. You see this as the second point. From Genesis to Revelation, marriage is affirmed and protected. Right through the Bible. The creational pattern, man and woman, and therefore marriage and sex within marriage, is so important to God. It is what it means to be human that it is affirmed and protected right through the pages of Scripture. If we had the time I could show you that. I'd be glad to if you would like. It is clear. It is consistent. And the Bible's teaching on marriage and gender and sex is never rooted in culture. It is rooted in creation. It is not a pattern that changes as culture changes. It is a pattern that remains and transforms the culture. I guess the key question today is, who are we listening to? The culture or God? It is not easy to listen and obey God when the noise of the prevailing culture is so loud And it is, isn't it? So pressurizing. But this cultural moment will pass. And the Word of God will stand forever. But marriage is not only affirmed, thirdly, and protected through the Bible as the pattern for how we are to live. It is a picture of how God will redeem humanity. The book of Genesis was written to encourage God's people that he has a plan to redeem them, that he will fix their broken relationship with them, that he will bring them home to a promised land. That is what Genesis is about. And marriage is how God pictures that. Right through the Old Testament, the covenant bond between God and his people is described as marriage. Hosea, for example. Deuteronomy, Exodus, 1 Samuel. And then in the New Testament when Jesus comes, when the long-promised Messiah comes to redeem humanity, to restore the image of God in humanity, marriage is the picture used to describe the relationship between Christ and his church, the redeemed people of God. Now, 
one-page turn for you today, just to keep you on your toes. Just one. Turn to Ephesians in the New Testament. Somebody shout me out a page number. Ephesians chapter 5. 979. 978. 978. Any other options? 978. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Paul is speaking to these Christians about marriage. Now, verse 31, read with me. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul grounds what he has been teaching in the preceding verses about marriage, in Genesis, in creation. They are creational principles. But look at verse 32. But what I'm saying, verse 32, is profound. Now, don't be distracted. This is so important. Okay, let's come back to this. He's teaching about marriage. And then he quotes from Genesis 2 to ground it in the bedrock of God's sovereign will. And then he says something astonishing in verse 31, verse 32. This mystery is profound. Marriage is profound. But I am not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see what's going on? This foundational description of marriage and creation points us to redemption. For what did Christ do? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. Jesus Christ left his father for us. A man shall hold fast to his wife. Jesus Christ committed in a covenant to us such that he laid down his life for us. And the two shall become one flesh through Christ. We are united to God. The Spirit of Christ lives within us. We are sons and heirs. As the redeemed people of God, the church, we are the bride of Christ. And one day when he returns, we will live in a new creation. Described as what? Revelation 19. A marriage banquet. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Come from God as a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. And then there will be on that day a spontaneous chorus that will sing, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, for humanity will be finally reconciled to one another and to God. Now, finally, how are we to live as Christians? And with this, I close. In this cultural moment when the noise is deafening and the pressure is very real to not listen and not to obey God's voice, what do we do? God created man and woman and therefore marriage and sex within marriage. That is how we are to live as Christians. Within our church family, real 
loving, committed relationships with each other right across the church family. Within our church family, a high view of marriage, a commitment to affirm and protect marriage, a commitment to the marriages within the church family that they be protected. Within the marriages, many of you are sitting next to your spouses to leave, to hold fast, to be one flesh. If God gives you children, to see them as image bearers of God and to treat them as such, And to live like this as a church family with open windows and open doors and open lives. Not to stand behind a lectern and preach to our society as to how they should live. But to show our culture a different way to live, and thereby, in so living, to do what God's design for humanity was always designed to do, to point people to Christ That's how we're to live as Christians. I have one more paragraph because I'm the minister of a church. And I want to end not with a kind of objective theological explanation of how we are to live as Christians. The bit I've just said in the last three minutes, you know that. But it's not as simple as that, I know. I know that personally. And I look at my wife, and she knows that I know that personally. I know it pastorally. What huge risks I'm taking. Because I know you and love you, know your lives. We have pasts, we have shame, we have present struggles. We have marriages where leaving and holding fast and oneness are not there. We have the pain of singleness and a deep longing to be married. We have the constant battles with the flesh, what God's Word says and what I feel, what I want, what I desire. Where do we need to be with all these struggles? in a church family that is real, but most importantly in God's family, as forgiven, redeemed people indwelt by the Spirit of Christ who is restoring the image of God in us day by day, bit by bit. Jesus left His Father for you. 
He committed to you by laying down his life. He is united to you in one flesh. And he is remaking you to be perfectly like him. And one day that image, that likeness, every fissure, every crack in that mirror will be mended. Jesus offers a relationship with you and him that is better than any marriage. You marry to Christ. Well, if you're not, think of it like this. You're standing and he's at the door and he wants to walk down that aisle and marry you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these great foundational principles and truths. We pray, Lord, that we would all, because we all are not like this, see these principles as good and honorable and dignified and true and of worth. And turn to Jesus Christ. And be united to him. To receive the forgiveness that he offers and the fixed relationship with God. And to allow the Holy Spirit that indwells us, his spirit, to rebuild that broken image. Men and women, and therefore marriage and sex within marriage. Help us, Lord, bit by bit, to be like this and to live out before the eyes of a watching world a different way of life, not to stand in judgment over them, but to stand under the authority of your word. And let redeemed humanity in community speak and sing a song that points people to the one Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we pray that in his name. Amen.